Hello and welcome to Homestead Hens and Honey, a beekeeping, chicken keeping and general homesteading podcast. I'm your host Gemma and today I am going to talk to you about preparing beehives for the winter. So before I get started on that topic, I thought I'd give a bit of a homestead update. Um, at the time of recording, it is the 8th of October. It's one of my favourite months. Um, I love autumn. It is one of my favourite seasons. I really like spring and autumn, those kind of in-betweeny seasons. Um, it's absolutely beautiful in the sort of northerly states where we get the really dramatic leaf changes. Um, and I've always enjoyed going outside more than usual during this time of year. Although um, the leaves get to be a little exhausting. Um, I think I mentioned before I live on a wooded lot and it's a lot of oak trees and they like to drop a lot of leaves. So I've already started the leaf raking um, and I like to bunch up all the leaves around the base of my big oak trees. It's kind of a, a cheapy mulch. And an added bonus of this is that my male whippet, Chappy, loves to sit in the leaf pile while he's um, hunting and just relaxing in the garden. Um, I'm going to put a picture up on my blog of that. It's absolutely adorable. It's just utterly charming. Uh, it's also the time of year when my chickens are slowing down on their egg production. Um, I'm at um, what, 12 chickens now and um, I'm probably getting on average about six to eight eggs a day. Um, keeping in mind that, you know, three of those chickens are my special needs girls and only one of those actually produces an egg regularly that's viable. Um, Agatha lays her adorable little fairy eggs and the other girl, um, she lays a lot of very soft shelled eggs, even though, you know, I'm very careful about how much calcium she gets. She just hardly ever lays an egg that has a decent um, shell on it. It's just something that she's always been like. Speaking of Agatha, my very, very elderly and hospice chicken, she's still hanging in there. She's still my fluffy little butt. Um, she's still getting her medication every day. And she's just, I'm really pleased with how things are going. Um, I did pick her up. I mean, I pick her up every day and probably about a week or so ago, she felt a little lighter. So I'm keeping an eye on her. I'm definitely going to be increasing protein as we go into the colder weather. I mean, all of them will get more protein, but Agatha in particular, I keep a very close eye on. And she might have lost a little bit of weight, but I'm not too concerned about it. I mean, she's still eating and active and happy. Other major news from the homestead is that last weekend, my foster dog, Willie, went to his new home. Uh, I'm very, very happy with this particular placement. He actually went to live in Florida. Um, the woman who adopted him flew in with her sister-in-law and then rented a car to drive him back so he'd be comfortable. She also, um, she bought like human pillows and fake fur blankets and a little pop-up kennel for him and just so many things, so many treats and toys and she got him all snuggled into the back of the car and he looked so comfortable. Apparently the trip went very very well. He was um, a, just a champ through all that driving. He's now very happily in his forever home and I am delighted. So that is a job well done for Foster Willie. Um, I actually looked back and I realised that we'd had him for eight weeks which is really unusual. Uh, I actually my first foster whippet was a senior girl called Piper and I had her approved to be adopted by a couple before the two weeks mandatory hold that we take on had passed. So she never even made it to the website to be publicly posted as available. I was able to get her turned around within, I think it ended up being two and a half weeks before she went to her new home. So I'm kind of surprised that it took the time it did, but you know, sometimes with um, sometimes with the older dogs, you really need to make sure it's it's absolutely the right home. And Willie did have some requirements. You know, he's not cat safe. He needs someone who's home more often than not. Um, he is intimidated by much larger dogs. He needs a fenced-in yard. You know, things like that. So I had a. You know, I did have applications come in for him, but they just weren't right. Um, so I'm very grateful that this family in Florida would put in so much work to come and get my sweet boy. So 
I'm very happy and um, his new mama has um, promised to give me updates and win our friends on Facebook. So hopefully I'll get to see how Sweet Willie does. Um, I will say I do miss him, particularly in the mornings because he was always so enthusiastic in greeting me. But it's also much, much more quiet here because he was such a barker and we're just not used to that. So um, yeah, it is very peaceful again here at home and the pack is sort of settling down and uh, I am, I do enjoy the peace and quiet as much as I love and miss Willie. In B news, uh, I did a hive inspection last week and I was a little anxious about it because I like to be in my hive every seven to ten days, but this was almost 14 days, um, mainly due to the weather Last week was trying to prove that fall was not here. It was like the, what's that, the dog days of summer. It was very hot. We had a couple of 90 degree days. It was really high humidity. And then when the heat went, we had very heavy rain. So neither of these sort of situations were very conducive to getting in the hives um, earlier in the week. So I did wait for a day that was hot, but less humid. So hopefully the bees would not be as cranky. And, um, it wasn't so hot that I was immediately trying to like tear off my suit and my skin, you know, it was bearable. So I went out and I looked at the hives and the first thing that I noticed is that there was some robbing behavior. And I can't remember if I've really talked about robbing, but it, it's kind of what it sounds like. It's when bees from one hive find a weaker hive and they try and steal the resources. So they try and get into that hive and take out the honey and the pollen. And we're in that time of year where you're going to see some of that. And my understanding is that in a, in a true robbing situation where, you know, a hive is weak enough that these uh, foreign invader bees are successful in getting past their defensive, their defenses, um, they can be decimated. A hive can be stripped clean within one afternoon. And what I was seeing wasn't that. It wasn't a true robbing situation. It was more of a kind of a colony drift situation, which was causing fighting at the entrances. So bees from other hives were checking out these hives and the girls were like, no, you don't live here. You don't have gifts. We're not in a good mood. You need to go back to your own house. And I realized that I was at fault for some of this. What I had done is, um, I had moved some frames around in one of my hives. So um, in Queen Caredwin's hive, there were two deep supers and one medium or honey super on top. And when I had gone into the two deeps previously, I had noticed that there were quite a few frames in each of the supers that had no wax on them. And so thinking about them going into winter when they're going to, you know, you want to reduce the space in the hive, like the empty space, space that doesn't have stores or bees or, you know, things like that. Um, I realized that what I needed to do is I needed to take the, the, the undrawn frames out and I needed to condense the two supers down into one super, which is what I did. Now, sadly, um, I ended up with two frames that had beautiful wax pulled on it, but no stores. So it's just fully pulled wax frames, but there's nothing stored on it. So I took those out and I placed them in a super with a cover and I accidentally forgot to bring it inside with me. and I had left it out behind the beehives. Well, the trouble is that the three hives nearby could smell that wax and so they're investigating the super to try and see if oh is this like a, a convenient source of free food and I think this is what was contributing to the fighting that I was seeing so when I realized what happened I quickly brought that super inside um, I actually brought it into my fenced off garden I let it sit for a little bit so that any bees that were still inside could fly off and go back home. And then I moved it into the garage and I'm probably going to, um, 
I might plastic wrap the wax frames because I've also heard that the smell of the wax can attract, you know, rodents. And I know that we've had field mice that um, will overwinter in our garage. I don't want them going in there and destroying the wax. So I'm probably going to wrap them and then place them somewhere, which is hopefully uh, rodent proof to get through to um, get through the winter to through to spring. So aside from that, the hives are, I mean, they're looking pretty good. Um, Queen Morrigan, who is my Ohio bee, the one that the hive raised themselves, she still has the biggest populated hive. She is two full deep supers and one almost full honey super. Um, they have the most activity, the most population. Um, she's had a really, really good buildup. I am not as concerned about her, although um, that colony did have the higher mite count and this coming Thursday I am removing the mite treatment that I had in place which was Apivar and I will then be doing a mite test while the weather is still mild enough to get in there and hopefully I'm going to see a um, big reduction in their count because I really want them to get through the winter. Um, Queen Marker's buildup is better, but she's still my smallest hive at one deep super and one honey super, neither of which are completely full yet, but I'm hoping I will have see a change in that when I go in on Thursday, because she did start really upping her, um, her egg laying to get her winter population going, so fingers crossed, and I'm... As for Queen Caredwin, you know, I condensed them down. Um, it helped. It seems to have helped. They've been very productive. I see a lot of um, action going on there. So fingers crossed uh, that they're doing well. Um, I did start feeding a 2-1 sugar syrup. Um, so that's two parts sugar to one part water. And I do actually think in hindsight that I should have been feeding that earlier in the year as soon as our evening temps started to cool down. I think it would have helped a bit more. Um, and also in hindsight, I kind of wish I had fed the light syrup, the 1-2 um, syrup in the spring earlier. I think, um, you know, thinking ahead to next spring, I think that's something that I'm going to try and do to just give them a little bit more of a jump start. Um, I'm also thinking that if I can get my three hives into spring all alive, I would love to um, be able to do some splits and maybe get up to six hives. So I'm already planning um, an equipment list, um, you know, what I might need to do, what needs to be bought, what needs to be prepared. And then as always, um, you know, once we're going into the new year, I'll be looking at, um, you know, looking to my teachers for nukes and packages and trying to decide if I want to um, add additional bees that way. So that's what's been going on here. To get started on our episode, I am talking about how we prepare hives for winter. Um, and this is all new to me. I went to my books and I started studying and I started reading all up about it. Um, I knew some basic stuff like you can wrap your hive to help insulate it, um, that you can feed your bees, but I didn't know anything like, you know, when do they eat? What do they eat? You know, it was all new to me. So before I get started, um, as always, a list of references are available on my blog. Um, but I'm going to reference them here as well. So I use some books which will be sounding very familiar to those of you who've listened to previous episodes. The New Starting Right with Bees by Kim Flottam and Kathy Summers. This is a very small book that was published by AI Root Company and um, it's got some very good information in there. Some of it's a little dated but I did use that book for some of the information today. The Backyard Beekeeper, 4th edition by Kim Flottam. Beekeeping for Dummies by Howland Blackiston. The Beekeeper's Bible by Stuart Tabari and Chang. And one of my favourites, Honeybee Biology and Beekeeping by Dewey M. Cameron, Karen, sorry, and Lawrence John Connor. So, how do we get bees through the winter? I have a fair amount of anxiety about this because... <laughs> I love my bees. I love my hives. This is my first year keeping bees. So winter is a very daunting prospect, 
particularly because whenever I see local beekeepers getting together in the spring, one of the very first topics is how many hives did you lose over winter? And I know some people had 50% or more losses. So it's very intimidating to me as someone who's new to this. Now this past week, it really felt like winter was so far away because we had these 90 degree days and there were things that I couldn't do outside because it was too hot and I am white, white, white and I burn in a second. But I knew that winter's coming and I wanted to get ready and this week it's been much, much cooler and now I actually feel rushed to get all my equipment together to prepare my girls for what's to come. So I looked to my books and a couple of other online resources and I started reading everything I could about winter preparation. And really, winter prep is relatively simple. What's complicated is timing things correctly. So if you leave some things too late, you're putting your hive potentially at a disadvantage. Fall, autumn, this is the season that we should be preparing and we really want to start very early on. So as soon as it starts getting a little chilly in the evening, I think is the time that next year I will know I need to start thinking ahead about what I need to get ready through the fall season so my girls are ready for winter. Now in states with a late summer or an early fall nectar flow, such as Ohio, um, you do need to be careful not to overharvest any honey. So we are lucky that we have this additional nectar flow um, and that we can potentially get two honey harvests in a year. And a big part of that is because of a plant called goldenrod. And it, this plant, um, it sometimes gets confused with ragweed, but it's different in the sense that it, you know, it's a tall stalk with um, multiple blooms coming off the top. And they are very, very bright yellow. They're absolutely beautiful. I have them actually on my property. And once I knew that they were a good bee food, I realized I see them everywhere. They grow on the side of the road here. I see them on you know, any kind of empty lot. Anyone who allows some weeds to grow, there will be goldenrod there. I'm really pleased to notice that a number of my neighbours are actually incorporating goldenrod as part of their garden. So they're not removing it. They are enjoying the yellow flowers. And that's great because my bees are going to harvest the nectar. Um, I had heard that when bees start harvesting goldenrod nectar, I would know because it has a very potent smell that some people actually find off-putting. I love it. Um, it's it's kind of hard to describe. It's a heavy, almost musky scent. It's a little like a wild animal smell, if that makes sense. Um, basically, if you've ever been in an active honey hive and you're, you've smelt that kind of intoxicating mix of, you know, warm nectar, beeswax and then the little musky scent from the bees themselves it's sort of that dialed up to about a hundred which I love um I'm actually a bit of a, an indie perfume not indie standing for independent so and that's kind of a um, an area of perfume where people experiment with sort of very different scent so it's not just sort of uh, you know this is a citrus scent this is a summer scent this is a winter scent it's experimenting with things like gourmands or aquatics or you know very heavy civet blends and so I maybe because I'm into that I love the smell of very complex heavy intriguing smells so I love the smell of golden rod nectar in my hives I absolutely love it but anyway if you are in an area where you have a, um, a chance to harvest in the fall, just be mindful that you're leaving enough honey for your bees. And if you are intending to take everything, then you need to time it so that you can take your honey and then start heavy feeding that 2-1 syrup so that your girls will have enough to get them through the winter. Because part of our preparation is assessing a colony's stores and trying to figure out do they have enough? Are they going to be able to survive on what they have? So a general full checklist is the following. Treat 
for Varroa as needed. So if you listen to my Varroa my episode, you know that you should be um, doing your mite checks and then treating when you get to threshold levels. You want to look at the amount and the position of the honey stores within your hive. Check the extent and pattern of the brood area. Look at the size of the adult population and also look at the brood and adult bees for signs of their overall health. Are you seeing instances of disease? Do they seem weak or slow, sluggish? Are they showing any signs that you're worried about? And then finally, look at the condition of the comb and the equipment, because this really will just give you an idea of what you need to prepare for. Are you gonna need to do any equipment repairs over winter? And in terms of comb, you wanna leave, you know, good condition comb for the bees to work with because this is not the time of year when they're going to be producing wax. So to really understand how to assess all of the above, um, I figured we could discuss how bees themselves actually overwinter. Like what's the mechanism? What are your bees doing while you're all snuggled up inside with a hot chocolate? So overwintering bees are physiologically different from summer bees. They have large hyperpharyngeal glands and more fat body reserves that secrete large amounts of something called vital. <laughs> I'm going to do my best here, folks. Vitalogenin, which is pivotal to their winter survival, as it appears to be responsible for increasing their lifespan. So, you know, a regular worker bee would live about three to five weeks in the spring and summer months, but can live um, up to six months or more over winter. So again, why do we treat for Varroa? Varroa feed off these fat stores in bees, which is therefore reducing the amounts of vitalogenin that a bee needs to get uh, her through winter and it is a girl because all the boys have been kicked out if they haven't done their job and they haven't banged a queen they're off so in terms of this process and how it works um, I do recommend once again going over to scientificbeekeeping.com and checking out uh, an article that Randy Oliver published called Fat Bees and I'm going to link it over on my blog, so do be sure to check me out. As always, the link to my blog is in this episode description. So anyway, the winter bees are different to summer bees. As the temperatures outside drop, these bees will cluster around the queen and the brood, forming a ball, or like a spherical shape. The adult bees will vibrate um, their wing muscles to generate heat, which is supported by brood metabolism, which also generates heat. This process maintains the temperature of the hive um, and is, is a form of thermoregulation. So the basic hive temp is usually about 57 degrees Fahrenheit, um, which is about 15 degrees Celsius. When broodless, the center of the cluster is around 70 degrees Fahrenheit, 21 degrees Celsius. When the brood is present, it can be as hot as 94 degrees Fahrenheit. Early on in the winter, the bees are gathered around the brood. But over time, obviously, the brood's going to hatch. And eventually that cluster will consist almost entirely of adult bees, which is when you would expect to see the center of the hive at the lower temperature that I mentioned above or before, sorry. Um, as the daylight hours start to lengthen, which is usually in January or February, depending on where you live, the queen actually starts laying eggs again. And eggs need much higher temperatures to hatch. And so that's when the cluster must heat the center to 94 degrees Fahrenheit, even though temperatures outside might be their coldest for that winter period. So you can see that this cluster is pivotal to maintaining colony temperatures. Well, how are these bees eating during this time? And this is why it's important to check where your honey stores in a hive are, because really what you want is this spherical cluster needs to overlap at at least one point with honey stores at all times. 
this constant movement of the wing muscles that generates heat is calorie intensive and those bees are going to need to eat. The outer bees will also bring food to the brood, the nurse bees and the queen. And so you want this overlap so there's always a portion of the bees in the cluster that have ready access to honey. Now this cluster at the beginning of winter should be in the lowest box of your hive and as winter progresses it will start to move up and it's consuming the honey as it goes. But what's important to know and this was completely new to me um, I had no idea this was the case, is that the cluster won't move in temps that are under 40 to 45 degrees Fahrenheit. So if you have this cluster that's like low down, then there's a gap, and then the honey stores are above that gap. They risk starving because if the temperature never goes above 40 to 45 degrees, they won't move to that honey. And if they can't easily access it, they're just going to starve to death. So this is why when you're looking at your, your hive now, what you want to see is the honey around the edges of the brood and above the brood. So I think most of us know that the honey goes above, but it's also important to have that outer source of the honey kind of around the brood uh, area. Now, the more bees that you have going into winter, the stronger that cluster so assessing the size of your adult population is really important because it gives you kind of an idea of, you know, is this hive stronger or potentially weaker than another one? And it also lets you look at how much food that they've stored and figure out, do they have enough for the amount of bees that will be going through the winter? Because more bees will need more food. So to quote the honeybee biology book, while colonies in the Gulf Coast states survive with 30 or fewer pounds of honey reserves, colonies in more northerly areas need up to 90 pounds, end quote. So if you're a newbie like me, you probably have no idea what this looks like. I am terrible. I can never remember roughly how many pounds of honey are supposed to be on like one deep frame or one honey super frame. I just, I can never remember. So what I was told and what I have seen through um, reading my books is that you're basically looking at a roughly 50-50 ratio. So you want to see like 50% of what's filling your hive should be population and the other 50% should be food. So that what that could look like is if you have one deep super full of bees, you want one deep super full of honey. Or if your colony is actually very, very small, you might have five frames of bees to five frames of stores in, in a 10 frame Langstroth hive, like I have. So in this sort of same vein, I mean, how do you know if your overall population is actually large enough to survive the winter? What if you just have too few bees and, and what does that look like? So once again, to quote Honeybee Biology, a desirable full colony should form the initial cluster on five to six frames of a hive body. This is approximately 25,000 to 30,000 bees, end quote. And again, around this cluster, you want to see honey stores around the edges and above the brood frames. Your bees will cluster around the brood and the outer cluster will overlap with their food. So there's always going to be some bees that can easily access food, no matter what the outside temperatures are. So what happens if you go in and you have a huge population of bees and there's just not an equal amount of stores? Well, this is why we check our hives. This is why we go in regularly and we assess how our hives are doing. Because if you've been doing regular inspections throughout the, the year, you'll have an idea of how the colony is progressing overall. So to use myself as an example, once I split off my large colony, so I had Queen Marker in a, in a single deep, and then I had the remaining colony in a single deep, and I let them raise their own queen. Well, since then, Queen Marker her colony has been smaller, which is accepted, like that is, um, that's ex 
expected, excuse me, but I haven't been thrilled with how she's performed as a queen compared to my other queens. And so every time I've gone into her, I've really assessed how she's doing. Is she laying more eggs when she should be? Is she responding to increased feeding? Um, you know, what's the quality of her production like? And I can track this through my journal. And I have seen an improvement in her, which is making me tentatively hopeful that she is at a point where she can get her colony through the winter. So kind of going back to what I said earlier about how we want to start thinking about winter seriously at the very beginning of fall. If you are in your hives as soon as it's starting to cool at night and you're looking for all the things that I mentioned above, you'll know whether now is the time to feed that heavy syrup of 2-1. So two parts sugar to one part water. And what this heavy syrup does is it encourages the bees to store it. The light syrup that we feed in the spring that is one part sugar to two parts water, that stimulates brew production and wax building, which is why we feed it in the spring. And that's not really much good to us now because... Um, the bees are not going to be naturally producing more wax at this time of year. And um, also we don't necessarily want to encourage the brood production and we don't want to make it too hard for the bees to condense what we're giving them in the form of syrup into honey because they do have to work to remove the additional water, which is why we're giving them this heavy syrup. So you can do this heavy feeding through the full season as necessary. And um, everything that I've read seems to indicate that in some cases, it could be the key to a colony's winter survival. So just feed as much as they'll take and keep an eye on them. You know, make sure that um, they do have enough space for all of this feeding and, um, you know, just keep on offering that syrup. Now, another option that I did read is that you can take honey frames from a large and healthy hive and you can place them into a smaller hive that need that additional stores. And the benefit of this is that there's no, you know, turning syrup into honey, you're just giving them straight honey. Uh, now, again, if you are removing honey frames, you want to make sure that the hive you're taking from can spare them. And this, you know, some of this is just experience. So if you're not comfortable doing it, it's your first year like me, um, don't worry about it. Just feed that syrup or you know maybe ask your mentor or someone from your local bee club or you know someone that you know who keeps bees and has a bit more experience like you know maybe just ask them what they think now if you are going to do this um when you take out those honey frames make sure you brush off any adult bees um as many as you possibly can a few probably isn't going to cause a big difference um and one little word of warning about this is that if you have hive sites which are you know more than let's say a quarter mile apart or so or if you're being offered honey frames from you know generous keepers in your area just remember to consider issues of biosecurity and the possibility that you could be introducing a potential disease or pathogen from one hive into another hive now if you're like me and you have three hives that are right near each other that's not really going to be an issue. But if you had, like, let's say I had my hives here and then two miles down the road, I had a field that I had filled with hives. I might not want to move frames from one location to another um, I, because I might be introducing some kind of issue. Um, or, you know, maybe I decide, well, they're all my bees. I'm going to risk it. And again, this probably comes with experience. So if in doubt, just ask someone who has done this before and um, knows their stuff. So hopefully this gives, I mean, somewhat of an idea of, of what we're looking for when we look at our adult bee population in the fall, as well as the amount and the position of the honey reserves. But in terms of assessing the brood quality, I mean, what, what does that mean? Is it just how much brood? Or, I mean, what are we really looking for? And I didn't know. And so again, I turned to my books and from what I've read, uh, we're looking for a handful of things. So the first one is that the brood area should be becoming more central and lower in the hive as opposed to being dispersed throughout the hive. So for instance, you could 
let's say that in sort of summer you had some brood in your bottom box and in your middle box and maybe even you have a little bit in your top box well as it gets cooler in the fall you'd want to see that start to condense down now as the brood space is being reduced and compacted down you might find that your overall brood pattern is looking a little spotty because the bees are going to be backfilling um, areas where the bees uh, the baby bees have hatched with stores as part of this kind of reduction and compaction of the space and this also is going to leave less room for your queen to lay so you're going to see a decrease in eggs and um, usually this will be around October and November you're also checking for signs of disease. So sometimes you'll see an indication that there have been wax moths tunneling beneath the brood. Um, you might see something called chalk brood, which is caused by a fungus, or even worse, I mean, pretty much the worst thing would be it if you saw um, European fowl brood. And for more information on this, I highly recommend going to a website like Scientific Beekeeping or picking up the Honeybee Biology book and really reading through all this stuff. Because just describing it right now for you to listen to, it's not the most accessible way. And I think finding videos or, you know, actual photographs of this is, is a much better learning tool. So um, go forth and Google. So what happens if you find any of the above? What if your brood hasn't um, decreased down or your brood um, isn't diseased, but there's just hardly any of it? Or maybe your adult population is just really sad. Like maybe you go in there and there's just, you know, like hardly any activity and there's just not much of your bees. I mean, what what are you supposed to do? So one of your options, if, if this is the case, and you have more than one hive, would be to combine a hive to another one. And generally what's recommended is you combine either a weak hive to a strong hive, or you put two weak hives together to hopefully produce one strong hive. So when you do this, you can um, use one of, uh, you can use two methods. One is the newspaper method that I've discussed previously, where you take the uh, weaker hive and you place it on top of the stronger hive with a few sheets of newspaper between them. So let's say your strong hive is two deep supers and then it has the inner and then outer cover. So what you would do is take off the top covers, take off the outer and the inner cover, place a couple of sheets of newspaper over the top of the frames, and then pick up, let's say it's a one deep super of the weak hive, pop that on top of the newspaper, then add the inner cover, then your telescoping cover as usual. And now you have a combined hive, and by the time they have chewed through the newspaper and got rid of it, they're sensible intermingled, and they should be one colony. Um, the um, something to consider when doing this though is as I mentioned above you want that kind of nice condensed brood cluster and if you're placing one colony on top of another colony you're going to end up with obviously a brood cluster at the bottom and then one on the top and depending on how the weather goes I mean, I'm assuming it's possible that suddenly everything could get really, really cold and the bees need to cluster and they'll go to where most of the brood is, which will be in that stronger hive on the bottom. And so the weaker brood above could be abandoned and left to perish. And then you have issues with, you know, not only are you going to have less bees hatching out over the winter period, but now you've got like dead brood up in your box over winter and, and how's that going to affect things? So one option that you have when combining colonies is sort of muddling up the frames from each of the different colonies into one super. And by this, I mean, for instance, um, let's say you have a, um, uh, a deep super with brood frames in from a strong colony, and then you have a deep super with brood frames from your weak colony. I would intersperse the frames so it goes like one strong brood frame, 
one week colony brood frame and so on and so forth and usually we would not recommend this because what's going to happen is the bees from both colonies are going to be all mixed up and they're going to start fighting with each other and there will be some fighting however brood pheromone is going to I mean I don't want to say overrule them but one thing I will say from my reading is that bees love babies and the brood pheromone can be an even stronger way of uniting a hive than the queen pheromone because bees love babies and they can go for periods of time without their queen but if they have brood they love the brood and they want to be with it and they're going to prioritize it so alternating these old and new colony frames is going to just mix things up they're not going to know what the hell's going on and the idea is that even though some fighting might happen because of all the confusion but also the reassuring presence of that brood by the time things kind of simmer down and the bees figure out what the heck's going on they've usually united as a colony of girls going okay we figured this out we're going to look after our babies now I don't have any personal experience with this method at all but I have heard from numerous people that it, it really does work as terrifying as it might sound now, obviously, with both of these options that I mentioned, either merging hives with the newspaper method or muddling up the frames, you need to find the queen from the weak colony and you need to kill her because you can't have two queens in the same hive. And if you did put the two together because you think, oh, well, the stronger one will obviously survive. The problem is, yes, hopefully the stronger queen would be the victor in a fight but the weaker queen could harm her um, and potentially you could end up with two dead queens and now you have a queenless colony going into winter and that is just a disaster and I mean what are you supposed to do with that so as much as it sucks if you're going to merge hives you need to kill the queen from the weak colony so identify her first set her aside combine your hives and then say goodbye and I don't know put her under a dandelion which is <laughs> um there's this great podcast um so I know I'm always talking about the uh the hive jive with um John Swan and Ken I'm always giving them shout outs and stuff I just love them it's one of my favorite podcasts but before I found them um there's this great podcast from England called the beehive jive who they post a lot more infrequently. It's usually like once a month or once every couple of months, but they're a great source of information. And um, the female host of that, it's because it's a, um, a girl and a guy and they're friends. And the female host once confessed early on that when she kills a queen, she always puts her under a flower somewhere in her garden. And I just love it. It's so whimsical. I know people have... Um, you know, teased her, sort of taking the mickey a little bit, but I love that. So if you are sentimental like me and you need to pinch a queen, which is a nice way of saying dispatching her, um, put her under a flower. <laughs> uh, maybe that will help you feel better. Uh, so anyway, let's say that you've, um, you've done your full inspection and you actually feel like your colonies are in a good place. So does anything else need to be done before winter gets to you? So in terms of preparation, most sources that I've read recommend the following. Placing a board to close off any ventilated bottoms that you might have on your hive. So a lot of bottom boards are actually solid or they're screened, but they have like a sliding... Um, you know, it's often metal or plastic that goes underneath the screen. And the idea actually is so that, you know, debris and nasties like mites can fall down onto that through the screen and onto the, um, the tray. And you can assess things that way. But the benefit as well is that you can take that tray out and have a fully ventilated bottom board if it's very, very hot. And then you can put that tray back in to close off the bottom board when it gets chilly. So if you have a fully opened ventilated screen bottom board you're going to want to close that off because you don't want snow getting in there you also want to apply mouse guards you want to remove a queen excluder if you haven't already make sure any varroa mite treatments have been removed from your hive you want to remove feeders and then you want to put in a candy board or a vivaldi board if you choose to not everyone feeds over winter but that's an option 
You can make or buy fondant if you do want to feed. You can tilt the colony so that moisture will drain out the front. You should prop up the inner cover to allow ben better ventilation. Make sure there's a top entrance slash exit for the bees. Secure the outer cover with a weight on top. Put up a windbreak to protect your hives from the northern wind and insulate the hives if you live in an area that's cold enough that you want to do so. So let's break that down a little bit. As I said, if you have an open or screen bottom board, you'll want to turn it into something more solid because you don't want heavy drafts or snow to get in there as potentially it's going to chill your bees, your winter cluster, and that is deadly. Now, mouse guards are basically um, little things that go across your bottom hive entrance and they stop mice from getting into your hive. And they can be made from plastic, metal or wood. Although I have heard, and I saw this in a couple of the books as well, that some of the wooden um, entrance reducers that people use as mouse guards still have a large enough gap that a little field mouse can get in there. So be mindful of the space on these things because um, you really don't want a mouse in there. And the reason why is that the mice are attracted to the warmth of the cluster. You know, basically, if you can imagine you're a little mouse, maybe you don't have a very good nest, you're hunting around for food in the winter and you come across this hive, it's lovely and warm in there. And they'll go in and they can cause a huge amount of damage that can kill your colony. Um, I actually found some multi-packs of guards on um, Amazon and I'll put a link on my blog because they're going to be the ones that I will be using this season and um, in the spring I can you know maybe give you an update on how they um, how they worked. Um, so I mentioned queen excluders. They should be off anyway at this time of year but do double check that you have it gone. Uh, worst case scenario your cluster is moving into the top box and the queen can't get past the queen excluder and they are forced to leave her behind and she dies. Not what you want. So be mindful when you go in at this time of year that that queen excluder is gone. If you used a varroa treatment that goes in the hive bodies like I did with the Apivar, they should be removed as well. You know, it's easy to forget that you left them in. I put something in the calendar, um, my Google calendar on my phone, so it notified me that this Thursday I'm going to go in and all those strips are going to be removed. And you want to do the same. Now, when I said to remove feeders, I was talking about liquid feeders. Um, they're just going to attract pests uh, at this time of year, particularly things like, you know, hive beetles, um, potentially ants, and even, you know, the mice again. So make sure that any kind of uh, liquid feeder has been removed. But what you can put in place of the liquid feeder is the candy board or a Vivaldi board. And both of these options allow you to feed a fondant to your bees. So basically, you know, fondant is kind of like what you get at the bakery. You know, it's compressed sugar with just a tiny bit of moisture that holds everything together. Bees need more solid food at this time of year as removing water from their food. It requires a large amount of energy and you don't want them expending more energy than they're getting in from their sugar. So you can make your own fondant. There's tons of recipes for it on Google and in various honey um, and beekeeping books, or you can buy it ready-made. And um, some of the fondant you can buy is just straight up, you know, sugar with a little bit of water. Um, I've also seen fondant made with um, sugar and corn syrup. And I've also seen other things added to it, like essential oils. And I don't know if these help but I haven't seen anything that says that they harm anything either so it's really up to you. I've also read that you can sprinkle dry sugar around the whole of the inner cover and that bees might take this but sometimes they don't so it seems like fondant might be the, um, the safer option. I also mentioned propping up the inner cover and that might seem counterintuitive but I'm not talking about raising that inner cover up by a large amount, like an inch or something. You're looking at about half to one centimetre gap. And the idea is that you don't want a large enough space for drafts to come in and start cooling from above. But what you're trying to do is you're encouraging warm air to rise up from inside the hive and be vented out the top. So humidity is a big killer 
of the winter cluster over winter. If you seal them up tight in that hive, you know, they're generating a huge amount of warmth. I mean, at one point, they're generating a 94 degrees of heat in the center of that cluster. And that heat is going to go out. They're also producing moisture because um, they're you know, their natural metabolism and then the met metabolic process of what's going on with the brood, it generates water. So that warm air comes off from the bees, it rises, it touches the cool sides of the hive, it turns into water droplets and it can start dripping down. And if that cold water hits your bee cluster, it's going to kill them. And so you want to have some ventilation going in both your chicken coop and in with your bees. Now, to be clear, you can have a lot more ventilation in a chicken coop than you want with your bees. <laughs> so it is two separate things, but you do want that little bit of a gap between the inner cover, just prop it up a little bit, half to one centimeter to help that air come out. And this is also why it's recommended to tilt your hives. The idea being that any moisture will come down, it will run harmlessly out the front of the hive, it won't condense on the bottom and chill that hive over time. If the bottom entrance of your hive gets covered by snow, you know, maybe you live in an area that has a lot of snow in the winter, your bees do need a way to get out of the hive because let's say you can't get out to the hive one day to clear away the snow and it actually is a mild enough day that the bees want to come out and go on what's called a cleansing flight, which is when they come out and they do their business. Well, if the bottom entrance is... Um, sealed off by snow they can't get out and holding their feces for a very extended period of time can actually make bees sick so you want to have an exit available for them at the top of the hive so there's always a way for them to safely come out and go on a cleansing flight. Adding a weight to the top cover is pretty obvious in that it can help you stop that cover from being dislodged during you know heavy winds or storms. Um, I have bricks on top of mine. I'm going to put a couple more bricks on them just to be doubly sure. Um, I'm also considering maybe strapping my hives. That's something I'm going to be looking into in the next week or so. I mentioned windbreaks and that's anything that helps keep the direct force of the wind away from your hives. So I've heard that people can use straw bales, some people put up temporary fencing, um, you know, obviously a, a more forward thinking, you have to plan this in advance, is to have shrubbery in place. Um, some people put up tarps, basically anything that helps block direct wind flowing onto your hives. And everything that I've read recommends doing this on um, the side that faces north. And I'm actually quite lucky because the northern side of my hive site is a big line of firs and so they actually provide kind of a natural wind block. I might also do straw bales just to be on the safe side um, but hopefully this isn't going to be a huge issue for me. And finally we have insulation and it is important to know that some people don't insulate or wrap their hives at all even in northern states. I actually um, met a beekeeper uh, over the weekend she has 50 hives and she doesn't wrap them um, she lets basically the strongest survive and hasn't had huge losses now my understanding is that a lot of her bees are like that they're, they're overwintered before that you know she's careful about her queens um, so that's something to keep in mind like you know maybe you don't want to wrap maybe you want to have that sort of Darwinian approach of if the colony is strong enough it will survive without. For those of us like me who are totally paranoid and just want to give my girls every single chance that I can particularly for this first year you will probably want to insulate and um looking into materials that you can use it looks like historically people have used um tar paper even old blankets or quilts and tops. Um, what I found is that a number of places offer insulated wraps that are UV and waterproof. And I'm going to link to the ones that I personally have chosen because they're from a local supplier. And um, again, in the spring, hopefully I can give you an update on how they worked for me. So if you're like me, and this is your first year, you might suddenly find that you have a shopping list to get through. Um, I 
looked at my options and I've decided on getting a Vivaldi board. Um, I'm actually probably going to build a Vivaldi board myself because I really like this. It seems to act as both a feeding option and a moisture board because it has space for fondant and then it also has space for additional insulation like um, cedar shavings which absorb moisture and then also help keep in heat. Um, the Vivaldi boards were brought to my attention by a local beekeeper who's had a lot of success overwintering her hives and um, I know I've said before you know you always want to listen to people in your area and see what they do because they are working with what you're working with they are experiencing the same season so if they've had success with something it might be a good idea to try it um, I am going to wrap my hives and like I said I'm probably going to help shore up that natural windbreak that I have with the fir trees and um only one of my hives actually has an open bottom board right now it doesn't have the option of um having a sliding tray in there and I'm just going to swap it out with a solid bottom board which I've already placed an order for. So let's say you've done all your shopping, you've got all your equipment, you've done your inspections, you've bundled your hives up, they are ready to go into winter and now you have to wait until spring. So can you check on your bees? Well I did some reading about this, <laughs> as I always do, and everything I read basically said that you do want to keep an eye on your hives. So even when there's snow on the ground, you can go out, you can make sure that, you know, I don't know, the wind hasn't blown the top cover off, that they haven't been knocked over in a storm, and look at the lower hive entrance. Um, you're probably going to see some dead bees throughout the winter. Um, if you see like a dozen or so, that's supposed to be okay, but if you see hundreds of dead bees, that could be a sign of a serious problem. If your daytime temperature goes above 50 degrees Fahrenheit and the wind is mild, and let's say also the sun is out, you could peek into the hive. Um, you basically, you don't want to do a big inspection or anything, you just want to take off the top cover and like look down into your hive. If the winter cluster is up in that top box then you want to feed for sure you want to put some fondant in there for them because they are on the last of their stores because remember they start low and they move up you don't want to be in there too long because you don't want to chill the cluster with any of the the cool air from outside and you also kind of want to eyeball that cluster does it look similar in size to how it did um at the end of autumn going into winter or is it very very small because if it's a lot smaller you're going to definitely want to feed and you also might want to brace yourself for a potential loss. Um, this isn't a guarantee it's not the issue isn't that small clusters are definitely going to die that's not the case but it's something to be mindful of. When you go out and you look at your hives, you might see browny yellow streaks on the outside, um, particularly after the bees have done their cleansing flights. This is bee poo and it's completely normal. However, if your hives are absolutely covered in it or you peek into the top and you see all of this poop inside, your bees might be suffering with something called nosema and it's a fungus that's harboured in their digestive tract. Now the problem is, is you can't actually treat nosema during the winter season, but you can be prepared to help your bees deal with it when they emerge in the spring. Because nosema is a risk over winter, um, some beekeepers will provide a preventative treatment of something called fumigillin in the fall. Um, I haven't done this, um, I just, by the time I read about it, I feel like the time has passed. I'm also, I'm kind of hesitant to do preventative treatments of things. You know, if, if it's possible that my girls could get through um, without suffering through an eczema, I want to see what my chances are of that before I just start giving medication in advance. But it's completely up to you. This is a relatively common practice from everything that I've read. Um, the, the real issue here is that if you see eczema, you know that that hive is going to need a little bit more care in the spring. And that's why we're looking through the winter. Now, when it's very, very cold, 
you obviously aren't going to be opening the hive. And But let's say it's super, super cold, there's no nice days in the forecast and you are very anxious and you're fretting about how your girls are doing. What can you do? So I have read that some people recommend just going up to the hive and very, very lightly tapping on the side and listening for the buzz that the bees will give in response. But I've also heard that this is actually a form of stress for them and it can also increase their use of calories as they're vibrating louder to respond to you. Um, so I've seen some people say, don't do this, never ever do this. This is a terrible thing. Don't do it. You're stressing out your girls. And I don't know what's true because historically this has been the method um, you'll see it in a lot of books, particularly older books, and it's only now that people are saying, no, don't do it. So I'm hedging my bets and I'm buying myself a stethoscope so I can listen in to my girls without disturbing them. Um, one of my local keepers does this. I think it's a genius idea. Yes, I am crazy and it's totally okay. Bees make you crazy. This is a safe place. <laughs> uh, also, just kind of as a sort of out there option, um, a techie friend of mine told me about this monitoring system called Hive Genie, and I'll post a link on my website and on the Instagram. Um, and basically, Hive Genie is a product that uses multiple sensors to monitor your hive, including internal and external temperatures. Um, it's a really cool looking system, but it's very expensive. And if you're listening to this podcast episode now, it's also might be too late in the year for you to get this system up and running, particularly if you're having very cold days, because you want to minimize how much you're in your hive at this time. But for any of you listening who might have the money, time and inclination to give Hive Genie a go, if you do have it or you do get it, please let me know how it works and tell me what you think about it because I'm super curious. I'm going to be keeping an eye on them um, and I'm definitely going to try and track people down who've used it. I I love the idea of techie people getting together with beekeepers. I think we could do some really incredible stuff there. So, um, you know, take a look at Hive Genie. Let me know what you think. Um, sort of an out there possibility. This isn't something that I need to worry about. But for those of you who live in the north, um, you might need to install a bare fence, um, which is basically an electric fence. So if you know you have bears in your area, um, it's usually black bears, but there will be some of you who, you know, might have grizzly bears, which is awesome and terrifying. Um, one of the things I've read about this is that if you have bears in your area for winter, you want to definitely strap down your hives so you're strapping the supers together but you're also strapping them to a very heavy stand so that they can't be tipped over because if you just strap down the hive but it's not attached to the stand then a bear who's trying to get in there he could just knock that whole hive over this can break apart the cluster and kill the bees so make sure if you're strapping down the hive that you strap it to a very heavy stand that cannot be pushed over by a black bear I mean, I suppose that stand would have to be really heavy if you have an area with grizzly bears. And honestly, if you have grizzlies, you want to strap and you want to put up an electric fence. And then I don't know, pray to the god of the forest or something, because I can't imagine much stopping a very hungry grizzly bear when he or she decides that um, it's time to eat. Although that begs the question, doesn't it? Because bears are supposed to hibernate, but I suppose because of how crazy our winters are. I know that sometimes bears wake up a little earlier and then they're really hungry and they need to shore up their fat stores. So just, you know, be careful. It's always better to be safe than sorry, right? So if you know that you've got bears in your area or you've had an issue with bears before, maybe look into an electric fence. And again, let me know how it works for you. I'm always very interested in hearing about how other beekeepers progress. And um, that's it, really. So you want to just do a lot of preparation in the fall. You want to, you know, get everything sorted with your girls, tuck them in, and then just wait anxiously until um, spring arrives. So I am a nervous wreck about it. <laughs> um, I know I'm going to be fretting. I am definitely going to be out there with my stethoscope, like some kind of crazy person pressed up against my beehives and trying to hear that they're in there. Um, I actually... 
my husband through his work at one point he had a thermal camera and I would love 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 if I could borrow it because then I could look at the hive and I could get a thermal reading to like maybe if it's strong enough I'd be able to see the um the cluster inside that would be oh that would be very exciting I will ask him about that and if it's something that I'm able to do I will definitely post pictures um so yeah that's I mean, that's really it. That's all I can think of. That's all I found. That is what I will be doing. So as always, thank you so much for listening. Um, I actually got my first comment on my um, podcast, um, actually on my hosting site, and I'm really grateful. Thank you so much for the comment and for getting in touch. Um, I absolutely love to hear from you guys. Please feel free to find me and reach out to me on Instagram. I'm at Homestead Hens and Honey, all one word. You can find me on Twitter at Homestead Hens, and you can email me at Homestead Hens and Honey at gmail.com. As always, I will have a link to my blog in the episode description. Um, it will have um, you know, pictures, additional references, it will have links to anything I mentioned, so like Hive Genie or scientific beekeeping articles, you can find all those on the blog. Um, Please check me out over there and please follow me. Um, I will occasionally post additional entries that maybe aren't enough to do a full episode about, but are things that are happening on the homestead that I'd like to share. And I always like finding other bloggers and other beekeepers. So, you know, let me know where I can find you. If you have an Instagram account or a Twitter account or a blog, you know, send me the link and I'll follow you back. For my next episode, I'm thinking about doing it on honey harvesting. Um, Yes, we've kind of missed the boat on that one. (laughs) It's not the time of year that most people are harvesting. But um, it's something that's new to me because I wasn't interested in bees because of honey I was interested in bees because of their biology and I just think they're nifty as hell and I went into this assuming that I wouldn't get honey until at least my second year so I never really read about honey extraction it it was something that I put aside I kind of put it on the back burner so I could focus on um honeybee biology and sort of the mechanics of beekeeping but now that you know, we're going into the winter, I have a chance to look at other topics. So I'm going to start looking at that. And I think I will, you know, share with you what I've learned and have an episode for you about how we harvest honey and what options are available and maybe what I'm thinking about doing um, next year. So we'll see. And um, oh, as always, I will let you know how my prep has gone and how my next hive inspection goes and all that sort of good stuff about what's happening with my particular bees. So once again, Thank you so much for listening. I really appreciate it. Um, Until next time, remember, hug your hens and then wash your hands. Cheers.